God bless you today. It's always a joy to have you here. And, you know, your thousand dollars cannot reproduce until it enters so into a covenant with the soul. Baptist Church, Church will picket their funeral. You can put that thousand we will remind the living that you can still repent and obey. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where biblical Christianity meets American evangelicalism face-to-face. -face, I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We uh, uh, praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, His ministry, and we pray His Spirit will be upon you and us tonight. We have a, we have a visitor all the way from Arkansas, and he has a special talent. Blaine, come up here really quick. Blaine's going to come up here, and he's going to show you something that they do in Arkansas. I'm not sure of the reason, but it, it's quite interesting. Come on up here. All right, so we have Blaine here. Make sure you don't mention your sister's name because we don't want to embarrass. <laughs> All right, Blaine, you ready? Yes. There's the camera, Blaine. Go ahead and do what they do in Arkansas. Woo! Pig silly! Razorback! <laughs> Pig suey Razorback. Wait, Blaine, what does it mean? Ah, got it. So they call the hogs in Arkansas uh, that way. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Hey, let me remind you uh, that we have three websites. www.hotm.tv serves as an archive for all of the previous shows. And uh, www.bornagainmormon.com. You can hear uh, our approach to reaching Latter-day Saints with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we have campus with hyphens in between the letters. And that details kind of our general approach to doing church on Sundays. Um, so uh, check those out for your edification if you would like. We met up, I met up with an LDS man uh, a few days ago. He doesn't really buy into Mormonism, but he remains active because he says it's good for his marriage and his kids. And I'm slowly trying to persuade him otherwise. But I've been talking to him for a year and a half in uh, a place called Einstein's Bagels. And uh, he currently serves as a young men's program direct president in his ward. And he was recently coerced to take all the young men to a place called Manti, Utah, for the Manti pageant. The Manti pageant, for those of you who don't know, is kind of a theatrical experience that the Mormons put on on the hillside of their temple there, where uh, they reenact much of the history of Mormonism, leaving a lot of it out, of course. So uh, I've had... A, dozens of conversations with this guy, and he's really level-headed. And so I, I asked him, so what did you think of the Manti experience? And he said, it was a circus. It was a circus. So he went on to say that on one side were the Christians who were on soapboxes and ladders with, with megaphones and signs that said, you're deceived, Jesus, Joseph lied. And, and, and I'm not picking out these ministries and, and poking fun of them. I'm just saying this was his perspective, that they were all out there screaming, and it was a circus on one side of the street. And I said, you know, it's been a while since I've been LDS. Tell me, really, how did you feel as a Latter-day Saint with your young man? You're there to see and witness that. He just started laughing, and, and he said, you know, it was hilarious. It, it really makes you believe that you are being persecuted because you are representing something that's true. So it solidifies you in your stance as being a Latter-day Saint. So I wish the, the street protesters at LDS events would get that. And I realize the same thing could be turned on me. They could say, you're just reinforcing the LDS persecution complex. And uh, that may be true, but I'm not going to their events. I remember as a Latter-day Saint, when I would go to an event, if there were protesters, it just, it just had me retrench in my beliefs and where I was. So I said, how's the pageant itself? And he started wagging his head, and he says, oh, you know, gosh, Sean, uh, it was horrible. Just horrible. He said, there's all these people from southern Utah. It's like they're 50 years ago. They're still 50 years back in the way they're doing things. And they're, 
They're celebrating these things out on this hill, and it was so strange. And he says, have you ever been to the Manti pageant? As he was headed toward the door, I said, I never have. He looked at me in all seriousness. He said, don't go, don't go. Everywhere you look, you have these, these groups that are dedicated to proving the other one that they're wrong. And he said, from my opinion, they all looked wrong. And I, he said, I asked our young men, what did you guys think? Just asked them when we were in the car going to the hotel, what did you guys think of the Manti pageant? And they were kind of, it was kind of weird, you know? So even the youth aren't getting it anymore of what's going on. All right, got an email from Thaddeus in Ireland. This is what he said. It's an amazing, it's long. Sean, thanks for the ministry. Thaddeus from Ireland. Uh, love it. Thaddeus, thank you. That was the greatest email I've read all week. Uh, and in addition to Steve C's out in Florida, in it he makes a prophecy. He says, you ready? Quote, polygamy will be totally legal within 10 years. After all, if a man can marry another man and a woman can marry another woman, why can't a man have more than one wife or a woman more than one husband? I don't uh, see uh, why Steve's prophecy will fail, to tell you the truth. In fact, there may came, come a day when a man or a woman can marry a sheep or a carrot or a rock, as far as that goes. Uh, you know, if, if a person truly finds happiness in this state, well, then who are we to prevent them from having it? Now, a couple of thoughts on this. There's a model here. It's in the Bible. It's Adam and Eve. It's not Adam and carrot or Adam and sheep or like what's her name said years ago, Adam and Steve. It's Adam and Eve. And it's not Adam and Eve and Jane and, and Mary. It's Adam and Eve. There's the model. Anything outside of that model is gonna lead to chaos and heartache and difficulty. It just does. We have tried every way possible to skirt around and come up with new ways. Open marriage, and, and now we're doing gay marriage, and there's been polygamy, and there's been concubines. All of it really, you know, it's usually the women who are suffering in it, and so all of it fails. That's the first point. But second, there's nothing anyone's gonna be able to do about the downward spiral. You can go out and rack your brain against the wall and bash it in and say, you know, we've got to stop this slide. So my suggestion is why go out and spend our time fighting against that? It's inevitable, it's scriptural, it's gonna happen. Instead, let's, you know, curse the darkness and shine a light. Let's shine a light in that darkness and that light is Jesus Christ. And let's share him as the solution to these things that are going on all around us. And yet that's not what we're doing. So much time and energy and money is spent, thrown at trying to stop this stuff. It, it, it isn't gonna happen. So, you know, whatever it is, uh, consider that. I'm gonna call this next little segment, the perils of iconoclastic Christianity. I got an email from Ryan B. He says, Sean, I discovered you on YouTube. Learned so much, he says, about the Bible from you. Uh, in your comparison to the Book of Mormon, thank you for your teaching. He's very gracious in the opening. It's the stroke and stab. Then he says, I was watching one of your new episodes and you were talking about the creation debate and it sounded like you didn't think that the Bible account was true or at least the science of it. Okay, I gotta stop you right there. I absolutely believe the biblical account is true. True, 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 okay? I just think that our interpretation of some of the things in there, uh, contextually speaking, I see them in different ways sometimes. I don't think that the Bible is untrue. I think the way that maybe sometimes we understand things the Bible says uh, fails. So it's not fair to say that I don't hold the Bible up as truth just because my opinion differs from the status quo, six-day creation being one of them. Ryan goes on, this really blew me away and now I'm disillusioned and lost. Not really, but seriously though, there is absolutely wonderful scientific evidence of a literal six day creation and flood and to say it isn't true just amazed me. Okay, hear my heart, which you know is what it is. I love the living God and his word. I'm sold out, sold out to his son. He is my king. I'll serve with all I can, but to pursue him, we have to pursue him with everything we've got, in my opinion. A half-acred approach to him is Laodicea, it's lukewarm, I don't get it. I mean, he wants you hot or cold. 
I, I, so I'm, I'm going to be hot after him. I'm not saying that the cosmos, cosmos was not created in six uh, literal days. I am saying that the argument that says it has to have been created in six literal days needs to be challenged. That's all. I'm not saying it's impossible for God to do it. He could have created it all in six literal seconds or whatever you want. I don't, that's not the point. The point is, does it have to be six literal days? See, faith is established on facts. We don't have all the facts. The book, the Bible in Genesis is not a science book. God purposely made it so. He simply gives us some basic facts. Uh, but with the information we do have, we have to carefully examine what is there so our faith can be based on the clearest information we have. When people possess what William James, who studied religion, called bad faith, it's because they have accepted a foundation of bad information, you see? So our faith is only as good and strong and as much of a saving faith as it is true and factual. Uh, you can't be saved by putting faith into Santa Claus being your redeemer. You need to have facts that are justified through research in order to establish sound and good faith. Listen, dogma is a fortress for people weak in their faith, not strong. You find people who are resolute in a stance, and I'm not talking about the majors, but even those have to be challenged so you can know. But you find someone who is so stiff and resolute in a certain idea, uh, that's not a sign of strength, it's a sign of fear and weakness. It's, uh, it is a refuge for those who don't wanna think, so they dig their heels into dogma and say, no, 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 no. And uh, this week, especially, I've seen a lot of that coming out in different people that I care deeply about. So they cling ardently to opinions that, that, that have been fed to them, but they've never really explored. So I want to understand God by and through his word as a whole, six day creation included. Let me say this. If someone can show me that throughout the Bible, the term day is consistently means a 24 hour period, not a longer period, not a shorter period, but day always means 24 hours, then I will readily accept and embrace creation as a 24, six day, 24 hour period. But if we have period, if we have uh, uh, scripture that says a day is longer, and there are plenty of them, and we have a scripture that says a day in the Lord is a thousand years and things like that, we have some leeway where we don't have to be dogmatic. We can say, well, there's a possibility that it wasn't six 24-hour days. It doesn't make me less of a Christian or less than a, a, a man of faith. It just means we're just seeing if there's some other ways to examine these things. We'll come to the six-day creation uh, examination in the next uh, couple months. All right, and with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we need you and seek you uh, to send your spirit and help uh, me articulate these things that uh, may or may not be of value. Pray that you will open all people who are seeking for truth up to your spirit. And bless our technicians, our volunteers, people seeking, in Jesus' name, amen. I've been taking a lot of heat lately. Everyone seems to be getting very irritated by the stuff I'm saying or suggesting, both in, in the church and then here on the show last week. I don't say things just to be a rebel. Uh, I wish I could just join the band and play along with everybody. It's much easier and it's much more peaceful. Uh, but I want to exist with spiritual integrity and not on myths. I want truth. I hope if you are a viewer or a supporter of the program, you share the passion. Last week, I mentioned that our topic, music and worship, is an incendiary topic to cover. The reason for this uh, is music and what Christians today refer to as worship, the worship time, is highly, highly, uh, highly subjective. I mean, we have, I don't know, maybe 15 people in here right now. Every one of them probably have a different view of what really inspires them and draws them to the Lord when they hear certain types of music. And every one of them probably have some subjective uh, uh, disdain for certain types of worship music, etc. So where Jim likes this and Mike likes that, and when it comes to spiritual experience through music, Jim and Mike will make their opinions known. 
and Jim will say, no, 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 it should be this, and Mike will say it should be that. As Christianity over the centuries has grown numerically, it simultaneously seems to have embraced a uh, kind of a line, a bromide, if you will, and it's the line, well, God can use it. God can use that, okay? That, I hear that a lot when we talk about things like this, and I agree. A terrible house fire burns up a whole bunch of uh, children, uh, terrible as that is, can God use that? Yes, he can. Uh, if people will let him use it, he will use that uh, tragedy. Is there someone addicted to heroin? Can God use that? Yes, he can. He can use that sinful state to bring them to him as they are broken, etc. I would suggest, however, that this attitude allows for some people to do things that I think are detrimental to biblical Christianity as a whole because it has allowed them to do all sorts of stuff that they have created uh, in his name. And so they can do stuff and then they can say, God can use it. And then everybody says, God can use it. And so we are kind of left wondering, well, what is, what is right? What is best? What is good? And it leaves you kind of hanging. Uh, in the end, everything becomes accepted and excusable because God can use it. And when I've heard that from some very astute uh, Christians of late, I, I say, well, why do I even examine Mormonism? What's the point? God can use it. Why examine anything? God can use it, you see? Is there a better way to approach things as believers or are all things uh, since Christ came acceptable free of him? I know the passage that says all things are lawful in Christ Jesus. I understand that passage. But the follow-up phrase in that is, but not all things are expedient. All things don't prosper. They're not necessarily all good, you know. So additionally, it can become extremely difficult to measure or examine or even criticize activities in the church when people categorize them as the work of the Holy Spirit. They say, well, this, it was the Holy Spirit moving and this is what occurred. So all things lawful and this is moving of the Holy Spirit throws us in doing church in a difficult corner. We, we have to sit back and say, well, I don't want to judge. I want to be like Christ. And, and it, it's, it's tough. So in my opinion, what men call the moving of the Holy Spirit is often just emotionalism uh, mistaken for the Holy Spirit. I had a good brother here on Sunday confront me over last week's program, and he told me in more words or less that I had absolutely no right to judge any activities in the body because, you know, God can use it. Uh, he point blank said, who do you think you are? And, you know, uh, it's a hard question to hear. I, I, I don't want to become the sheriff of, of Christendom. I, I don't like sheriffs and, of Christendom. And, and, and so, but aren't there principles, biblical principles that believers can appeal to as guidelines so we can kind of say, that's not of the Holy Spirit. And that is certainly not uh, uh, God's best practices when it comes to doing church. If there's not, and if God can use anything, attitude ought to be embraced, then everything is good. You want to put wigs on pigs and have them rooting in, around in the church and snorting as a sign that, that, you know, we are no longer under the law and we can eat anything? Go ahead. Put a wig on a pig. Have them come up and sit next to you on the pulpit. Do some snorting, and uh, it's okay. God can use it, and you know, the Holy Spirit was there. It's what made the pig move a little bit. Uh, handle snakes, God can use it. You know, you can, you can do it. Sacrifice children, seriously, where would it end with this type of thinking? It's crazy for me. Look, I'm not, I couldn't be a bigger proponent of freedom in Christ. Uh, I, I want to support total freedom in Jesus Christ and people's individual expressions of it. But remember, we are talking about doing church. That is what we are talking about. Uh, so I get musical preferences and its benefits. I know firsthand how wonderful singing can be and what they call worship today in the church and how when it's reasonably done, I know I, I'm not that dumb. Uh, but nevertheless, we are talking about best practices 
That's what started the whole thing, is going out and trying to see what churches would be good for the LDS that we were leading out to go see. And we said, let's go look at the best practices around the state. They must be the best of the biggest churches around. And we visited, and I didn't see these best practices in place. So that's what started us on this. So what does it look to, to participate in good best practice worship? Are, are we quenching the Holy Spirit if we say some things ought to be avoided? Uh, is it ever right to condemn a practice uh, or should we just mindlessly categorize everything as a work of the Holy Spirit? And if anything and everything is not permissible, who gets to say that's not right? I mean, does anybody have the right to say, no, that's not right? And, and by how do they measure that, that, uh, that judgment? The brother who confronted me was adamant that God can use anything and that I have no otherwise to uh, say otherwise. And then he went on, he said, I was saved in this movement known as the Toronto Blessing Movement, and which is a hyper-neo-charismatic group that started in Toronto Vineyard Airport Church years ago. The church became known what, uh, what is called as ecstatic uh, worship. And it includes things like being slain in the spirit, not a biblical line, but it's when you fall back on the ground and you are, you're in worship and you're just slain by the spirit. And I know very good, reputable Christians who say, I've experienced it. I don't doubt that. I think it's emotional. I don't think the spirit slays people. I think he's there to help us. Um, we, they, have, they have something called resting in the spirit, holy laughter shaking, outbursts of crying, and then it kind of grew into mimicking animals in church. And this was a major movement of the Holy Spirit within the body in evangelical America. So let's take a look at a clip from this group. I gotta say is our visitor from Arkansas, he would have finished, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, <laughs> he said I would have gotten out of there as fast as I could. You know what though? The, this, this guy, and he's a brother of mine, he's a friend, I hope he doesn't get mad at me, but you know what, you gotta say it as it is. That is where he was saved. That's where he came to know the Lord, and so because of that, he says anything goes, the Lord can use it. That was his rationalization. What you saw there was laughing in the spirit. And I know people who still believe that, that that is a form, just letting it out go and just laughter. And then you saw, you heard mooing and you heard cackling. That was animal noises coming out. They also have a thing called crunching that you don't see there. And that became popular after mooing got boring and, uh, and after all the animal sounds got boring. Uh, and crunching is where you bend over as if vomiting and you open your mouth and you heave to let the bad feelings and spirit come out as if vomiting there in the church. Paul was clear in 1 Corinthians 14 when he said, let all things be done decently and in order. It's really clear. Uh, he said later, uh, earlier in that same chapter, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Okay. So there's peace. There is one great way to measure if it's of the Holy Spirit or if it is of man. Is there peace present when what is going on is going on? Do you sense that spirit? I'm not saying feel, but there are feelings that we use. But do you have the sense of the Holy Spirit, which is a comforter? 
It's like a blanket on a freezing winter day that warms you, puts its, God is putting his arms around you, comforting you. Or do you have something that, that looks like that? But we, we're, we've lost the ability to discern because we're so afraid to step out and say, that is baloney. It's pure baloney. And no one wants to say it because when you do, you are criticized as being too judgmental, etc. So how do we determine what is acceptable, what is not? Someone asked me the other day, how do you tell, Sean, what is acceptable and what is not? And I quote Justice Potter Stewart, who when asked to define hardcore pornography said, and you all know this, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it, you see. And I can, you can walk into a church and if you have any reason at all, you can say these people have honest heart for God. They're singing with more passion. They're doing this, that, that's fine. There's, we don't need to micromanage. But if you see some of the other stuff, you gotta say, wait a second. And that goes down to tithing and appeals for money. It goes down to all of these things that men have made. Don't talk about this because I need this to stay in place with the church. I want truth. I want, I want to die with truth in my head and on my heart. Come hell or high water, I want truth. And, and so I, that is why we do what we do. I'm of the opinion that we can make observations that hold water relative to best practices with God. First, I would suggest strongly that God works in spite of men. That he's not working by these things or through these things, but he's working around them or over them or under them in spite of what men and women bring to the church. That is why my good friend was able to uh, experience the Holy Spirit at a place like that. But it's no difference than, different than people I've met who have been saved at a bar surrounded by hookers. They were drunk as a skunk and the Lord came into their life and they changed and came to know him. I know at least three from Calvary Chapel in, in California who've had an experience like that. So it's not that God, that we should all put bars and hookers in our churches now. It's that we know God is constantly calling. He's constantly working. And because somebody is saved through something like that doesn't mean we have tacit uh, agreement by God that, boy, I really like that barking uh, my, my children are doing down there. Let me present some other principles. Let's begin with a principle I learned from a book by Dr. Norman Geisler, who, by the way, Norman, Dr. Norman, Nor, Dr. Norman Geisler, Dr. Norman Geisler is a, not a six-day literalist. Just so you know, I'm not alone. Anyway, Dr. Norman Geisler, he said, and we covered this last week, should Christians do what will produce the best results? I mentioned this last week. Or should Christians do what is right? Okay. Now Saul, if you remember in the Old Testament, Saul was go, told, go in and wipe out everything. It was a picture of sin. Those are all pictures. And he didn't. He took the best animals and he kept them. And the prophet came to him and said, what is this bleeding I hear? And Saul said, I kept these so that we could worship the Lord and offer sacrifice. And we get that great line from God. He says, do you think I care about sacrifice of animals and all this stuff? I would rather have obedience than sacrifice. So it, there is the difference between doing things because they produce a really good end result. That's teleological motivations. You do something because it's gonna produce the greatest return or you have uh, deontological motivations which are based in law. Do, you know Deuteronomy, deontological, comes from the same thing. Do you do things because they're gonna produce the most crowds at your church? Or do you do things because this is what God wants you to do? In today's church, we have become more teleologically driven and we give every reason in the world to do what we are doing so that we can generate people in our churches because we can justify it by saying more people are hearing about the Lord. But that is not how Christians should ever live. We live in every way what is deontologically correct, not what is teleologically efficient. For instance, I know I can make a heck of a lot of money as a drug dealer. I know I could go to Columbia with some people I've met in the past and bring in a ton of money and I can feed the poor and I can build orphanages. I know I can do it that. But that is teleologically driven. It can produce a great result that I think is good and I can show, but that's not what God would want. So how do you live as a Christian? Teleologically or deontologically? So we can do that when we look at how things are being done decently and in order. Do you say as a pastor, we're gonna do things this way whether it produces results or not. 
we are going to teach this way whether it produces results or not. Uh, love and peace uh, should preside, etc., etc. So history proves that, you know, when men and women will guise, think governments will operate under the guise of this is for the greatest good. And they will, that's, that's almost like a, a teleological argument. Tremendous amounts of evil are done when people say, we have to embrace this. It's for the greatest good, you know? And so that's kind of the point of teleological and other. All right, third point I want to suggest uh, is we must ask ourselves, what is the best way to approach the best practice when it concerns things of God? We are talking about human beings seeking to worship an eternal God, our eternal God. Is there a best practice? And we're going to cover these next week when we come to the details, excuse me, of what worship is about. But I think it makes sense that we try to discover what are the best practices to worship rather than uh, what are the teleological practices. In her book, The Fountainhead, Ayn Rand, I read it years ago, but promoting her her selfish uh, philosophy of objectivism, Ayn Rand taught something in, in the narrative of her book, The Fountainhead, and I'll never forget it. And what it was, she essentially asked in this courthouse setting, has one, the protagonist say, is it, is it right, is it good, is it moral, is it virtuous for an artist to create something uh, below their ability to create it? Should an artist create something beautiful but add something ugly in it for balance? Or should an artist try to reach for the ultimate expression in their gifts in creating their art? Now, if, if an atheist like Ayn Rand understands that uh, in, the, in creating art, you will put your all into doing it the best you can, and she, you give the example of like someone who stands on a vista and right at the, right at the magic hour of light and they're painting that vista every, every night at the same time at dusk for months and months they're painting that picture and then they decide to draw a smiley face right in the middle of it. What would be the purpose? Why would you destroy something beautiful that you have put all your heart and soul in with some ugly little thing in the middle of it? What, when Michelangelo, he did David, uh, why didn't he put uh, uh, acne all over David's back? Why didn't he demean it somehow to make it more realistic? Because when you're doing your art, you're giving it your all to make it re- reflect you in the best way you possibly can. That is the epitome of doing your art. So when it comes to worshiping God, we want to proceed and worship him in the best way that we can, not in the ways, listen, that please us. Here is a big difference we're going to point out next week. Worship is not about pleasing us. It is about appealing to a God who created us and who we are giving homage and honor. So let's look at the first uh, biblical definition of worship and we'll go to the phones. 801-590-8413. Essentially, as I said, worship is giving homage and honor to God that cannot and should not be given to any other item or, uh, or being because to worship any other item in be- or being in the same manner that you worship God is, uh, and that is reserved for God, is a form of idolatry. We don't ever think of it in these terms, but really that is what true worship is. This presents us with a bit of, of a conundrum when we look at modern Christian worship services. Let me put it this way. If someone goes to church and they cheer God and they clap their hands to God and they cry over God and they sing to God and they honor God with their mouth, they even bow down, which is the true definition of worship, on the floor to God, uh, such actions should never be uh, given to anything else. Because if you do those actions towards something else, it's a practice, a form of idolatry, okay? So let's say a person goes and he does that in church, and then he leaves church, and then he goes to a great piano recital. And in the piano recital, he stands and he claps, or he goes to a great film and he's crying from the film, or he, uh, or he uh, falls on the floor before uh, somebody, I don't know, I'm trying to think it through, but bottom line, when you assign the practices that you give to common elements to the practice of worshiping God, you are an idolater, okay? You got that point? 
So here's the deal. I am not suggesting we don't clap at concerts when we go to the arena and we see uh, Jay-Z. <laughs> oh, bad. Uh, when we see Jay-Z, I'm not saying we don't clap. I'm not saying we're not into it. I'm not saying you don't say, yeah, Jay-Z, that's great, to show that you appreciate his art or his music or a film you don't clap at the end or cry in it because it moves you. All these things are based in emotionalism. But when you go to church and you approach the living God in the same way, that is what the Bible in its contextual form says is idolatry. Get it? So this is how the world has woven its way into the church. It has made its forms of doing things part and parcel of what we do in, in, in life every day. And so we, have, we, we don't have a difference between the two. We just have life. And so people become numb when they come in church and they expect an emotional experience that is gonna be able to match the experience they had when Elton John was banging out Crocodile Rock. And when you do that, you make a mistake in how you worship God. That's why the Jews would never do this kind of thing that the American evangelicals have bought into and everybody else. All right, another thing really quickly is humility is a huge part of worship. Humility is the essence of true worship. That is why the word proskunio and the word in the Hebrew, akasha, for worship means the same thing. Bowing down to the ground, nose to the earth on the floor. That is how you define worship, all right? We are not worshiping when we go to church and we do the opposite and we stand. We are doing the, we are worshiping ourselves in a real sense. True worship is if you, when, what you will do when you meet God. You are gonna meet him and you're not gonna be like, Jesus, my homeboy, give me some skin. Yet we act like that's how we worship him and know him in church today. You will fall, like Isaiah said, I am undone, a man of unclean lips. Like Peter said, get away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Like every single Old Testament prophet who ever came in contact with God was, get away, I am so done. Forgive me to the ground. No, we don't do that. We don't wanna get our, our pants, our dockers dirty and our skirts messed up. We just, you know, when are we gonna have the passion to go after God like we should? When are we gonna go after and show him he is really our king instead of the performance that we give to Elton John and Jay-Z, Alan? So how is that gonna happen? What are we gonna do? When, are we, when will someone stand up and say, okay, let's change this? That is worship humility. Think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 25. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. Talking about a man. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. We, we have beguiled ourselves with culturalisms. It's just a joke. While the operators are clearing your call, please consider the following message. We'll come back and take them on. some emails. My name is Jessica. I was born and raised in the LDS church. I recently sent my resignation letter and today in the mail I received a letter basically stating that they're going to send me back on a wild goose chase as well as an invitation to come back. Uh, how on earth could I ever go back? My prayer is now that all LDS people realize that no church, no book, no amount of work they do, none of their prophets or apostles can save them. And if I am condemned to hell for believing in God and Jesus of the Bible, then so be it. Nothing else could save my soul. That is a beautiful email, and congratulations, Jessica, on that. Listen, there's questions uh, added to these emails about taking your name off the records of the church. Does it mean anything? How do you do it? You can go to utlm.org. They can tell you how to do it. You can go to our website, hotm.tv. 
There's a sample letter. You do that. Send it to your local bishop. Don't send it up to headquarters in Salt Lake City because headquarters will just send it back to the local bishop for him to take care of it. They'll call it an ecclesiastical matter. The reason they do that is uh, because they want the bishop to handle a court if one is necessary. Sometimes they'll hold one on you whether you deserve it or not. And they want the bishop to be able to inform the other members in his ward that you are now no longer a member of the church. And so they, that's how they control what's going on within the ward is have the bishop. So just give it to the bishop. Uh, you might send a little uh, note that says, I waive my 60-day term of waiting, and uh, that will help uh, expedite the process. Uh, I guess a new book is out. Dr. James A. Beverly, author of Mormon Crisis, Anatomy of a Failed Religion, Mitt Romney's run for President of the United States created enormous interest in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In spite of massive media focus during the so-called Mormon moment, coverage was often shallow and misleading with few reporters digging in deep enough to deal with evidence that the Mormon church is in deep crisis. Significant membership decline is occurring as evidence mounts about its lies, fraud, criminality, and deception through the entire history of the church. That new book is out. It's on Castle K Books, and I guess it's called Mormon Crisis. Uh, just to let you know, we couldn't, you could not get your foot in the door with a reporter that really wanted to go deep into the ties of Mormonism and politics and money. Uh, nobody wanted to touch it. The evangelical churches didn't want to touch it. He didn't win, uh, but nevertheless, it shows the church is still hemorrhaging from that. Uh, reports I hear from people who supposedly know the church is hemorrhaging, which is why the Christian churches need to step up, get rid of the dross, prepare themselves, for the onslaught of more and more people who are gonna be coming to it. Okay. This person gave me, a four gave me a four page letter defending Catholicism. My fiance is Mormon and I'm a Christian. This is from Josh. She has been in church since she was born and gets extremely defensive when we have discussions about theology. Recently, LDS missionaries have been coming to our house and she is trying to get them to convert. How do I go about helping her and them see the falsehoods of Mormonism teaches? Any help on where to start would be greatly appreciated. It's the question of the week. Everybody, every, almost every week we get one or two or five emails from someone saying the same thing. How do I get this person I'm in love with, my future bride, my future husband, my husband today, to see the differences between the two? Really, it's gonna be the Holy Spirit. I would also suggest, and we'll go to Mike in New York in just a second, but I would also suggest that it's often not your job. Spouses, yes, sometimes spouse to spouse, they often have a great impact on the other, but it's often not your job to bring out family members from Mormonism. Uh, it's gonna be other people who are able to do that because of the emotions that are tied into it. Let's go to Mike in New York on line one. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, hi, how are you? I'm doing well, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I called you a couple of months ago. Um, I don't know if I could... Can I still be out in the air with you? You can. We don't have any calls. You're oh, more than man. welcome. Yeah, I was trying to get your stream, but I couldn't. So oh. I'm, I'm calling up just to say hi and, uh, you know, basically keep up the good work. And my wife and I have been watching for over a year. Wow. And we came out of Mormonism, I think I told you, like in 2002. And uh, right now I got a cold. But... Um, we're doing good, and we're thinking about going up to the Hill Cumora uh, pageant, and we're going to, you know, proselytize and evangelize and, and try to, you know, make friends with a couple of families and tell them about Jesus. All right. Hey, Mike, let me ask you something. Where, where are you going to church now with your wife or family? We go to a Calvary Chapel. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're a pretty good, they're a pretty good uh, transition church for people coming out of Mormonism. Yeah, it really is because, you know, they go verse by verse, you know, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So um, it's really, you know, something that my wife has gotten into. She's gotten more into the word. And, you know, we just now we just see the deception, you know, right in God's word. And, uh, you know, it's awesome. It's just, you know, God opened my eyes and then my wife's eyes. And and we're just we just want to share that. And we want to be as loving as possible. We want to make friends and we want to not to offend anyone and just want to talk and, you know, give them a 30 second spiel <laughs> on 
what our lives were and what our lives are now. So. Hey, those witnesses work, Mike. Keep going. Thanks for watching, I will. man. And uh, again, I just wanted to tell you, you're an influence to me. You're you're a middle child too, like me. We're black sheep. We're the best of the of the whole herd. We got to stick together. <laughs> the middle children are the most established in life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. The black sheep. You're right. All hey, right, thanks, please. Mike. God bless you. All right, God bless you. Okay, Bye. talk to you later. Bye-bye. Listen, we got an email here from, I'm going to call her S. She really, really has a problem with my language. Uh, and she talks about how I'm complaining about uh, music and faith healings and tithing in the church. And here I am on television talking about these things. And she really hates the word. She asked me how to spell it. E-F-F-I-N. She asked me one day, what are you saying? I said, I'm saying E-F-F-I-N. What is that? It's effin. What does it mean? It means effin. What's effin? You know what it means, John. No, it means effin. And let me tell you something. This is not, this, this is not church. This is not church. You will not hear me say effin and, and, and shiitake mush, bull shiitake mushrooms and stuff like that from the pulpit, usually. But this is not church. I really, uh, effin is no different to me than shoot or darn or gosh or golly or uh, for crying out loud or any of those things. Effin is just a word I will use when I'm really heated. So listen, I, I will work on that for you, uh, but I can't make any promises. We're going to Jeff in Danbury, Connecticut on line two. Jeff, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, hi, Sean. Hi. Hey, hey, I'm a big fan. You, you, I've talked to you before. I'm here with my buddy, Gene, and we're six-day people. You know, we, we see Scripture as it says. We seek no other sense, especially it says evening and morning. There's no other way to interpret that. But um, one of the verses that we really like is in Exodus, was it 28? Uh, okay. 20, was it 20 what? 8 through 11. It says, and 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In, in it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, uh, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth. So, I don't know, I just want to throw it out there. I know it took me time to, to come to terms with that. I didn't, I believe first before I leave the creation. But to, to me, the way I look at it now, Jesus, especially if you look at the Jews at the time of Jesus' day, could you imagine them going to Jesus and say, did you really mean six days? I mean, we got to look at the, the really the simplicity of the, the miracle of that happening. Is it less of a miracle if it was 6,000 years? Uh... It would, take, it would take more faith to believe six days than, than what, what the world is. Why didn't God make it six minutes? Because it says it was evening and it was morning. I know, but you're talking about it being a great evidence to bolster faith. Why wouldn't God say in six minutes he did it? That's more miraculous than six days. It, it, I, I, I this is the problem. Point, it's the arguments. Yeah, it doesn't even... Go ahead. The, I was just going to say that to me it's just, it's, it's very simply but I, I think I the whole point when you say exegesis and teaching, basically reading what scripture says and then interpreting the world based on that. And I think pressures of the world make us interpret it differently. Well, I want you that's to. I think. Oh, go ahead. Well, I want you to know, Jeff, I don't, I am the least studied man on the world in terms of science. I, I don't know anything. And so it's not pressure from the world that makes me wonder about the six-day creation. It's a bunch of stuff that I'll bring out when we cover that, that topic that will cause pause for you as well. And, and it's from the Bible. And so I know your arguments and I agree. I, I can see that, I can, I can agree with you as a brother right now. Six days, act, morning to evening, absolutely. God did it in that time, sure, no problem. But there are other things that to consider when we are pursuing hotly after God to know him. And he has mysteries, you have to admit that. Paul talks about mysteries. And he reveals himself through those things. I want a deep and abiding faith that's based on fact. The reason that we do this, and, and, and you might not agree with it, Jeff, is that if, if we discover through our studies 
that it doesn't necessarily mean six literal 24-hour periods, we might have some answers if science starts proving other things. So we don't lock ourselves into a corner of dogmatism and say it's six days, it's six days, and then we become the flat earth society when, when it, it, it's proven that the world is round. I, I'm just saying our study as Christians should be as deep and as investigative as it can be so we can be prepared as things come up. And then we, look, then we can show the world that the Bible's reliable. But if we just say, look, you read it, that's what it says, that's what it means, I think I'm gonna show you that's a, that's a, it's not the best uh, way to, to take a stance. Yes, I, I get your point and your concern with other verses that were, can make us look like idiots if we don't know what we're talking about, but the plain sense of those verses make me take the stance and say, hey, if the science even proves it's not six days, I'm still gonna stand behind God's word with okay. that one, and that's just my sense. Well, I, I get that. I get that. Uh, now, here's, here's where you and I differ. This Bible is not going to fail me in the face of science. So this Bible does have answers for us that I will never be in a position that I have to say, science has proved this Bible wrong. I'm sticking with the Bible. Never. Because God isn't leaving us hanging out there that way. This is why we search like we do, so that we don't have to make statements like that that says... You know, I don't care at all if science proves something. I'm believing what the Bible. You know, that's what the Mormons do, Jeff. You could show me that Joseph Smith was riding on a billy goat through the desert naked, and I'm still going to believe he's a prophet. That's just the way it is. I don't care about the facts. That is not what Christian faith is based in. It is based in, in data that God has given us through all sorts of means for us to establish our faith on firm ground. So we will, I, I appreciate the call. And we will talk about this subject. I know it, I can already tell this is gonna be a fun one, but I'll present some sides to it that maybe you haven't considered. I'll consider your sides, and we'll see if we can't come to a common understanding one way or another. Absolutely. Sean, I love you, and I, I thank you, and I don't doubt your faith for any second, so it doesn't matter to me either way. But uh, Thanks, hey, Jeff. I know it's one caller here, but Mike, my buddy asked one question. He's here with me. Is that all right? Sure. Okay. Hey, Sean. Hi. Yeah, I do watch a lot of things, a lot of videos, and uh, I like, a, I don't know if you ever heard of Jason Lyle, he has a really good point, is um, what, he, what he mentions in a lot of his videos, and uh, is that when we take uh, scripture, if we ever uh, approach, in reality, it's not, a, uh, it's not a battle against facts, it's actually a battle of worldviews, where the uh, evolutions will attempt to bring, uh, to interpret, they interpret the evidence based on their worldview, and yeah. we interpret the evidence based on the Bible. Yeah. So it's not really, they, they, they're looking at the same facts as we're looking, but they're interpreting it differently. So Jason Lyon is saying that the importance of holding to Scripture and the, uh, the authority of Scripture. So if God said six days, science would never disprove what God said, because God created science. So um, I was going to say, if you want to check out more on it, there's a book by Jason Lyle. It's called The Ultimate Proof of Creation. And he uh, focused on the importance of holding on to scripture uh, for even even science, scientific evidence. Um, he has all, he also has a uh, a video on YouTube. It's called the Ultimate Proof of Creation. And he's and I'll check he it out. In the video is the um, it actually brings confidence. The video is meant to bring confidence to the Christian to hold on to scripture as the authority, authoritative word of God. I believe it is, Michael. I do believe it is. And I will check out that book, and I'll read it in preparation for our presentation on the six days. But, uh, I mean, Norman Geisler, Dr. Norman Geisler, one of the best living uh, uh, exegetes in the world for Christianity, sides with what I'm t saying. Now, so yeah, I understand. Even Stephen Meyer, he's a, he's a uh, uh, I think, a geneticist. Yeah. And he, uh, he studies all these things. He's, he's an old earth. Yeah. Uh, uh, what, what Jason Lyle focuses on the book is the problem of uh, of taking the millions of years and not interpreting Genesis literally, because it, it leaves the room for you to, for an evolution to say, well, if you can't take Genesis literally, that means you can't take the rest of the Bible literally either. Because but the, but the problem is, Michael, the guy, Michael, the guys who support uh, six day, they don't take the Bible literally in other parts. They selectively choose when to be literalists and when not to. 
So that is part yeah, of have... I can I'll bring up some passages and I'll ask you those passages on the net when we cover this topic and I'll say do you take this literally or is this figurative? And you're going to have to if you have any honesty say yeah that's that's figurative speech. There's a lot of it. So when do you decide what is literal and when do you decide what is figurative? Well, context is one of them. But what Jason Law is focusing is the whole, uh, where does this million, the millions of years uh, idea came about? It's, it's not really a battle of facts. It's like, uh, it, it, he, he focused on the video, uh, meaning showing that the, the scientific evidence actually show a young Earth. One of them is the amount of carbon-14 inside diamonds. And he explains why that is evidence. But that evidence does not prove creation. What proves right. creation is the uh, preconditions word. of intelligibility, right? And you got to you got to read the uh, the book. It, it's very thorough. But um, I mean, I could send you an email and, and, and cover some of the things. Once again, I, I strongly believe, so does Jason Lau, that you could be saved and be an old Earth creationist. Well, that's very you know, generous we, we don't of him. We minimize the the, uh, <laughs> the gospel for that, but he, he But you know, I, you, Michael, you know that there are people who say if you don't embrace. If you embrace... Yeah, I, I know that, yes, yes. I, I, I actually go against those people. You know, Jesus Christ never said, you know, if you, if you don't believe uh, that the earth is, was created in six days, you can't be saved. I, I agree with you on that. But what Jason Lyle is focusing is the importance of holding on as Scripture. If God said six days, right? If science would never go against it. It's just that the evolutionists would never take the, the science that opposed the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the evidence that goes against their belief. And one of them is the amount of carbon. Uh, carbon-14 inside diamonds is one of them. Just one. There's, Just one. There's tons of them, yeah. Let me ask, um, you, a, yeah. Let me ask you a question, Michael. Go ahead. And we're going to wrap it up with this, okay? Okay. It's Steven, by the way. So I don't know. Steven? Hey, it's our graphics people. They've been smoking ganj. Uh, Steven. Okay, listen. Gene, Gene, Gene. Gene? Yeah. I've been smoking <laughs> Just kidding, lady out there who criticizes everything I say. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Do you have any children? Do I have any children? No. Yeah. Okay, well, let's say you have a teenage daughter or son, and they come to you, they're 13, and they, they want to know, you know, I'm really interested in what the Bible says. <coughs> I'm going to give you two approaches. <coughs> you tell me which one you think would be more efficacious in helping them continue to be children of faith. All right, uh, my son, listen, it says six days. Norman Geisler and this person say that could be a longer period of time. It could be representative of periods. On, on, on the opposite side, we have Lawson who says there's like literally six days. We have passages of scripture we take literally, my son. We have passages of scripture that are figurative. We have uh, passages that talk about days not being a single 24-hour period. But then again, it could have been six days. We don't really know. What we do know is that we have God's word here. You can read it, resort to it. And those questions can be discovered over time. And I would suggest you listen to all the evidences, but continue to search through the word. That's one approach. Okay, approach number two with teenager who's going to go through high school and he's going to, because you can't afford a private school, he's going to go to public high school and then he's going to go to a community college and then he's going to go to a liberal uh, school. And you, or you say, listen, the Bible, you take it as it reads it. As it reads it. You take it as those six days, and that is it, my son, because if you go any other direction, you're going to find yourself going outside of God's will, and that's dangerous, my son. So you believe what the Bible says. So that kid goes to classes, and he starts learning what the evolutionists are pushing out there, some being true, some being false. You tell me, which of the two approaches would you take? But that's not what I would say to them. I would say, look, here's the evidence. Look at the evidence shows it's younger. It's not really a battle of, of, of wit. But your, but your, but your argument, but your argument, Stephen, is we got to take the Bible for what it says. That's your argument to me. That's why I oh, use that. No, no. My argument is this: that science would never disprove what God says. God says six days. Science would always show it's six days. Now, evolutionists will interpret the facts differently. Okay, but when you, when we. Huh? You're going to have very, very persuasive arguments that are mounting by very intelligent, devious, if you want to call them, cunning men and women who are going to give things in their arguments that are going to sway these kids. And the problem is the approach that we have taken in teaching them to trust Scripture and to trust God. So that's my point in, in 
ferreting through this stuff. But it's, then you'll be minimizing the importance of scripture. Not at all. Not there, at all. There's a possibility hey, that science will rule the Bible. I'm not minimizing. I am saying, listen, God's word is true. We're just not sure what six days literally means. Here's why. And you show them what days mean in other places. And then they say, well, that makes sense. And they have a reasonable answer, trusting the word of God rather than a dogmatic position. We'll keep talking, my brother. We're out of time. Bye. Love you. Thanks. <laughs> Love you, man. Right. Thank Love you, you too. Bye-bye. We're out of time. Hey, listen, join us next week here on Heart of the Matter. Only to the shepherds Good job, of the